Hello and welcome back to Pixel Sift for episode 39. I'm Gianni and I'm joined by my usual co-hosts, Scott and Mitch. Hey, hey. Hey, what's up? And uh, don't Pokemon go anywhere because today we have a great show for you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. This week we're talking yeah, about the game on everyone's mind, Pokemon Go. Uh, as well as that, we'll be talking cultural and historic appropriation in video games. We also have an interview with Ari, William and Dave from Team Cherry. They're the devs behind the upcoming indie title, Hollow Knight. All that and likely a bit more today on today's show. So let's drink it all in. <laughs> You're listening to Pixel Sift. Or you might be watching Pixel Sift on Twitch. Pixel Sift. So video games often lend themselves to ideas and themes from a varying degrees of cultures and groups. But what does it do to our actual understanding of these cultures and pieces of historical relevance? Our first topic for today, we'll be looking at the idea of cultural appropriation in video games. Now, I do feel it's necessary to distinguish this from the normal idea of like a cultural, cultural appropriation. Video games are all-inclusive and it isn't one specific culture stealing another's. So there is a def- definite reduction or even removal of the, some of the negative connotations usually attributed to cultural appropriation, say that of Native American headdresses and bindis and other things borrowed and misused by our Western ways. But video games do definitely borrow ideas from cultures all over the world and timeline. Plenty of, plenty of um, examples. His- historical and, and cultural fiction is one of the most, I guess... Uh, fertile grounds for video games and sort of exploring the ways that people can, uh, work, live around the world. You know, you take, for example, something as simple as a game like Age of Empires, where you yep. have all these different uh, cultural, uh, you know, yeah, practices I mean, and, and people from around the world and they're important parts of that are, of course, simplified. You know, you're not taking the full breadth of, of how one particular culture is, but, you know, you're getting an expression of what that is and, and you know, uh, fundamentally, all of those things are kind of put into an equal footing, and I, I think and it, it just it just has a flair of the exotic. Any anything that has a flair of the exotic, you know, like it doesn't matter if it's like a cultural practice or let's say something of like sci-fi, where it's just it it's just something a little bit out of what you're usually exposed to. Generally, you find that interesting, and I think video game companies, like all I guess narrative media, capitalize on that. Yeah, you're right. It, it's a lot less appropriation and a lot more, you know, fiction, I guess. Um, you know, but it does kind of ex- obscure our views and opinions of the actual appropriation itself. Um, like mov- movies have been doing this forever, like um, and games, of course, too. But you know, say a war movie, you know, that that depicts a war in a certain realism, but it's it's not actually real. It's not the way it was. It's it's close to be, and it's almost a simulation of. But that kind of um, it's a limited perspective. Yeah, of course. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, um, and games are kind of real enough, but not so real as if they are, you know, exact kind of replicas of whatever they're kind of trying to replicate, I guess. And these things are usually, as they move through time, become their own, I guess, maybe narrative in their own sense. Like the difference I was exploring, like, there was a couple of different versions of, like, you know, the Baba Yaga story, you know, like the, the Russian... Um, fairy tale of like the creepy witch with the chicken leg house and i was just trying to figure out what was the original version of that the other night and 
there are about 50 different versions of that. So which did they all appropriate from each other mm. already? Like it, it's just these these ideas, I think, just modify over time along with the human imagination. Yeah, I think I, it's a respect thing. I think that's kind of the, the key part of it is that, right. you know, it, one of the things that jumps to mind is the game, the Assassin's Creed games, when they first came out, you know, they were very... Uh, I mean, they're obviously a very simplified version of a particular historical event, and you know that isn't representative of the historical event. It's kind of inspired by historical events. Um, but you know, they made a big point to say that we have sort of a variety of different voices and people contributing to this particular thing, and it's multiple different cultures coming along and and, and telling this particular story. Um, I guess because the important thing with all of these things is that if you're coming from the perspective of only you know one experience. You're never going to be able to experience the breadth and the uh, you know the depth of all of these uh, things, and you may just miss bits and pieces because you just weren't privy to that. And actually, having more and more people involved, and this is something that I think we're all pretty keen to see more of as well, is having lots of different people make different sorts of games. And you know, you can have the, the blockbustery games as well, but you can have smaller, more personal stories, and you know, just getting different voices in there. And- also, like I, I think people when they talk about appropriation, it, it seems like they mainly focus on the visual. Like yeah. that's well, symbolism I, that's I, is very important, you know, yeah. and, you know, there is lots of things where, you know, something can be taken and used for purposes that are kind of just tokenistic and not right. actually, you know, representative of the culture. And, you know, there's these, they have, they talk about archetypal characters and, you know, you have these sort of stereotypical almost uh, characters that are just used for that particular thing. And you're not given characters who may have particular traits, but aren't a stereotype. Mm. It does seem like that depending on how you handle like the rest of your cast seems to be the way that people respond to that positively or negatively like i guess the overwatch franchise i hate to bring it up again no, but okay. that's pretty much what it's I've a really good example for this so the, the, two, the two characters genji and hanzo they are pretty stereotypically you know the about the honor and about there's like the family they infighting. pull from a lot of the tropes that we kind yeah. of yeah yep. but it seems like it, it, people respond to those characters very well because it's very familiar and people understand, at least on a basic level, you know, a family feud and, like, I guess the, the very Eastern affordances that come into that kind of thing. Well, there's a, there's a human story that's going to be universal in it. Yeah. In that yeah, there, yeah. There's this sort of thing, and that's why having this kind of character overlay of particular people who, you know, but have this also... historical and, and they're part of their character writing is that they have this historical and cultural significance to it. But science fiction is really good at doing this, yep. kind of taking... Uh, you know, slightly familiar sort of ideas, but twisting them slightly and then using that as a method in which to explore the ideas of, of how this particular culture is and our interactions with other cultures as well. Overwatch is actually pretty good at skewing that almost a little bit. Like, they're almost appropriating, like, current culture. Like, like China's under a lot of criticism now for not being very considerate to the environment. And that is, like, it's all over the news. Like, they don't... they. Like for the Olympic Games, they had to make effort to clean up their in like their air quality, and one the, the they're doing all that stuff in the Ch- South China Sea as yeah. well that the UN is commenting on at the moment. So I think o- Overwatch has made a slight joke where like the one of the chi- the only Chinese character in that game is Mei, and she is a climatologist and she <laughs> is studying global warming and trying to stop it. So yeah, I think like that's it, pretty funny. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. I mean, when we play these games, we understand that we're ent- <clears throat> entering a mythical kind of fictitious kind of uh, world. And, you know, there's differing levels of appropriation and realism. Let's compare, say, Overwatch as a first-person shooter, see uh, Battlefield. We know when we play Overwatch that it's more of a kind of, you know, 
uh, a less kind of strict, uh, realistic sort of uh, approach to culture and ideas and whatever. Whereas Battlefield is more of an exact kind of uh, simulation type thing. So we we expect different levels of uh, you know uh, coherence across the board of different games. It's interesting because Battlefield, especially Battlefield 1 that's coming out as well, has been criticised for some of the things that they have sort of picked out of historical mm. events. And one of the criticisms that they had was that there was no female playable soldiers. And they're saying, well, if you've got this world where you've basically created it all from scratch and, you, yeah. know, you know, the Turks were never fighting the English in some particular battle or, or any of these things, you know, can't you sort of change the rules and even look a bit broader where there actually were women fighting as part of battalions in, in Russia and... Um, in non-combat roles as well, were very important part of the World War One as well. Understandable. So. It's a really acceptable and understandable thing to criticise them for because it, you know it's it's not a historical representation to just make everyone the same. Um, and hope like we the way this world is going, I feel like there's those kind of things are going to be uh, understood to the level where we won't have to bring it up, and it'll just be done. You know, there'll be more uh, fairness and um, you know um, portrayal of all the different sorts of people that exist in the world. And I think having interactions with other different types of people, I think that's one of the things that I, you know, my favourite things about being in Australia is that you do have the opportunity to talk to lots of different people from different parts of the world and you get a bit of their experience and you learn more about it and that just comes to, from a, a richer perspective. So, you know, as games kind of become more mature and you get different voices in there, the perspective and the experience is actually going to be richer for it. It's, so. it's getting there. We see that every week with the game, with the people that we talk to and, like just the overall attitudes of the people making this art and mm. just the even with mainstream games like Overwatch and things like yeah. that, it's just the response is pretty awesome. I think it's uh, like uh, going back to the actual kind of topic idea of cultural appropriation, I think it's really good in the way that video games kind of um, make you access that world that you might not have ever kind of cared about before. Let's say um, Elder Scrolls or Skyrim, any of them, um, you know, Nordic kind of historic culture mixed with you know uh pseudo fantasy uh medieval times uh you know age of uh, god of war was all about like you know gr- well it was the greek yeah the original mythology. one and then that's moved into norse mythology yeah, as well it's now beautiful like yeah. uh, that's awesome it might not and be it should be a good jumping off point to go and learn more about these things exactly and, and that's what i feel like it does i mean it does for me and i'm sure it doesn't for everybody but it's a good way to kind of enter into something that you are really not uh, otherwise in and that's what video games are all about they're about immersion in an otherwise inaccessible world Magic, myth, law, war, racing, you know, shooting, flying, etc. These things aren't actual representations. They're just close to real enough. Yeah, I can attest to that personally. When I started playing Smite, I just started like, I know more about North, Norse mythology now through Smite. And, and that like, it should inspire you to go out yeah, and find and I, more. I, and I know that like, I know this is probably like, you know, Thor probably didn't do all these things like couldn't really do this but that's why like, it's mythology like, that's, yeah. that's why it's mythology that he's never been represented like that but I looked at the actual like just I looked deeper into it yeah. and I guess that's what I got out of it that's what we, we love here at Pixel Sift uh, let's jump into our next topic right now visit us on pixelsift.com.au Earlier today, I spoke to William, Ari, and Dave from Adelaide's Team Cherry. They're working on the beautiful Hollow Knight. It's a platformer that's set in a fallen kingdom. They told us all about how it came together. My name's Ari Gibson. I'm the animator, artist, uh, a whole bunch of things like that on Hollow Knight. 
Yeah, um, I'm William. I'm the uh, lead designer. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And Dave, I'm the, uh, the lead programmer. So could you tell me a little bit about the game that you guys are working on at the moment and close to, close to finishing? Yeah, it's like a 2D action-adventure platformer game. Um, the basic idea is that you're sort of you're in this uh, nice ruined old kingdom full of insects. Um, and then you sort of, it's like a, it's a big exploration. So the idea is that you are kind of, you've, you've come to the, the kingdom for this, for some mysterious reason. Um, you go exploring, you like delve deeper and deeper and f- find other characters and monsters and stuff. You also fight epic bosses yeah. and uncover dark secrets and all sorts of, you know, twisted things. Yeah, speaking of the darkness of it, it has got a very visceral sort of image to it and the way that the world's kind of been created. Can you tell me a little bit how you kind of came up with this idea and what were some of the inspirations behind making the game look the way it does? We sure can. Uh, I think, well, it started... The character itself was probably the, the base of it and a character came from another game that William and I um, had created with another friend for a game jam. So it was a short... Um, weekend game jam uh, that was a little bit different from this. That game was called Hungry Night, uh, which was a top-down game. Um, And a little bit different in style, but the main character and even the sprite for the main character was the same. Uh, So another game jam popped up. uh, Ludum Dare, I think. Ludum Dare. uh, uh, And we thought why don't we give this one a go as well? Um, and for that one, we were building what is essentially the, the basis for Hollow Knight, so an underground platformer-style game. Um, and because with game jams, you don't have a lot of time, we just ripped the sprite from Hungry Knight as the main character, and uh, eventually that game sort of evolved beyond the game jam scale and became Hollow Knight. A lot of the style the the actual the visual style probably just builds from that that game jam concept so simple simple quick it's an insect world probably because you think about insects as being relatively easy to animate and create <laughs> in kind of game game jam time frames it has a monotone sort of palette um so it starts largely blue um, and black because we didn't have time to think about color. Um, and if you have a lot of black, you can use it to hide a lot of things. So there's less of a requirement to do very extensive art. And then there's a, probably an effective element to that as well, which is that it starts to get a bit evocative and people use their mind, you know, their imaginations to perceive what's, um, or to, Kind of fill in the blanks, exactly. Is it difficult not going too far with adding extra bits and pieces as you're moving along in a project? Yes, it is. <laughs> it, 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 it is hard to say no to an idea that makes you laugh. Yeah. Which, <laughs> well, we, we rarely say no to those ideas. So we've done pretty well. All right, we're pretty, we've pretty much cut off new stuff now. Yeah, now that we're at the tail end. We've certainly added a lot of things because, yeah, you're absolutely right, that temptation is always there and we're very 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 bad at denying ourselves the enjoyment of creating more we did cut some stuff to be fair <laughs> some areas although the game yeah i mean all up the game is 
I mean, we're pretty happy with how it's ended up content-wise. There's like, a, there's a lot of, um, a lot of secrets to find, a lot of like hidden characters to talk to, a lot of sort of little hidden touches and extra bosses and lots, heaps and heaps of fights are in there as well. Now you launched a successful Kickstarter for Hollow Knight, and one part of that was a stretch goal where you included porting the game to Wii U. Can you tell me a little bit about the motivations for doing that? We'd started talking a bit about it. Uh, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a concrete plan at all when we started the Kickstarter, but it was something that we um, had considered. And after we spoke to Nintendo, I mean, we definitely said that we weren't going to offer it as a stretch goal or anything until we'd actually spoken to Nintendo a bit first, and then they contacted us. And, um, and we also had a lot of feedback from backers and stuff um, who were keen to get it on the on the Wii U. So that that all contributed to the decision like maybe halfway through to make a Wii U stretch goal when we released our stretch goals. Do you think it's dangerous having console releases as part of the stretch goals? I noticed you also had the PS Vita as one of the other platforms you'd like to bring the game to. It can uh, be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely definitely can be. I mean, um, when you when you haven't tread that ground yet, but, um, but definitely the demand was there. Uh, I think. Yeah, Kickstarters are probably inherently dangerous yeah. anyway, right? So, yeah, I mean, you might not even finish the game yeah, in the end. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and some of them do fall over. You have to be a bit responsible. So, like William was saying, we made sure that we had long conversations with Nintendo to ensure that um, it was feasible for us, um, that we could publicise it, and also it was around that point that we were talking about switching over to the Unity, the cross-platform engine, which would allow us to much more easily get it onto um, something like the Wii U um, and other platforms. Uh, So the Wii U, I suppose the Wii U stretch goal was also bringing with it the the idea for us that we would switch into a new engine and then that would, um, and then ultimately, that gave us a lot of benefits in production. Um, it brought along some additional complexity, but it did help a long way in actually making the game sort of work at the scale that it is. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people who are sort of really passionate about one or two consoles. So, you, you know, when you, when you speak, when you set <clears throat> a stretch goal for, for whichever console, you get a lot of enthusiasm from a section of people and from like, you know, Sony or Nintendo um, news sites and stuff will will um, often pick you up. So there is some benefit there too. And we have also have a personal interest in releasing on platforms like the Wii U because we have Wii U's and we'd like to see titles like Hollow Knight on there. And we like we like to have those you know, other games, especially when there's a limited selection at the moment. Do you think that's, I mean, that's the sort of thing I'm trying to get at is basically, you know, the Wii U has, for a lot of people, fallen sort of by the wayside. You know, there is a, sort of an extra cost and, and a cost benefit as well of, of putting time into bringing it over to a, a new platform like that. You know, say, for example, if you'd been committed to something like the PS Vita, which has had a similar sort of experience, how would you sort of approach that if you had to say to people that maybe it's not worth it for us to do it anymore or, you know, the, the, the economics of it don't make sense? Well, uh, I mean, if you, if you get to that point, yeah. I mean, one of the one of the our main things with the Kickstarter because we've we've also like because we uh, we set up our original release date and have since gone past it. But what we've done is we've been careful to to communicate the whole time with backers and keep them updated, um, you know, about about what's happening where we are. So if I mean, we've not hit that 
uh, we've not hit that yet, but if, if something like that comes up, I think what you have to do is just, you know, be sort of honest and open with people, let them know where you are and what you've tried and what your plans are for the future. And we've seen it happen with other Kickstarters, I think, where they've had to change their console goals. And yeah, <laughs> saying that, we, we're not, like, the, the reason we're doing Wii U build is, is, is like, also, sorry, I should say the reason that we're successful at all as a product is in a large part because of people who want the game on the Wii U. So we yeah. we have an onus to deliver to them and we also obviously want to. We like having the relationship with Nintendo. Um, we'd love to continue a relationship with Nintendo into the future. We think there, and there's an inverse element to say, like you're saying, the console heading towards the end of its life, um, which is that less games are coming out on the platform so though, but those few games that come out that are really good can really stand out because they're not swamped by all of these other titles and a lot of especially some of the the very good independent titles that have come out on Wii U have done really really well because they're not drowned out by a hundred triple A giant blockbuster kind of things yeah, I mean, yeah, I've heard like a few indie games have actually reported bigger sales on Wii U. And Nintendo themselves have been hugely supportive of yeah. bringing it to Wii U and and promoting it worldwide, um, which obviously gives us immense benefit when we're here in Adelaide without that much ability to reach out to the world ourselves. You can follow Team Cherry on at Team Cherry Games. On Twitter, you can visit their site, which is teamcherry.com.au. You can head over to hollownight.com. Should be coming out into the future at some point. <laughs> uh, the uh, the guys at Team Cherry were kind of, when it's done, it's done. Yeah. Kind of like this podcast. When it's done, it's done. <laughs> With that, let's jump to our next topic. Watch episodes, Let's Plays and more at youtube.com forward slash pixelsiftau. So it looks like Pokemon Go is still a thing, and for the second week in a row we'll be talking about still it. Still a thing? It's, still, it's a hell of a thing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing. It may have affected productivity in the office today. There was uh, a situation maybe 40 seconds ago where (laughs) someone may not have been able to switch uh, video modes because they were trying to catch an Abra. Not pointing uh, any fingers. Was it Abra? There was an Abra. Hang on. Okay. (laughs) All right. uh, Anyway, with the mobile juggernaut getting even attention on mainstream media here in Australia, we felt like we needed to take a closer look ourselves. But what's next for the App Store? Wonder. Can Niantic stop Pokemon Go from ending up like another draw something or its close relative Mimoto? Mitomo. 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 It's pretty forgettable. I can't even say the name right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I can't even remember how to say it. Uh, So it's, this is, I think we probably haven't seen anything like this blow up to this extent. Probably ever. I think since the po- since Pokemon came out the first time, like I mean, obviously I was in the age where I felt like it was pretty huge and globally whatever. But yeah, the first release of the video, uh, the yeah, um, red and blue Look, or green. If you I'm looking right. at an, yeah. in, I'm looking at a Google graph right now, and it's beating porn <laughs> on the Google searches. Do you know they said oh. that Pokemon Go is yeah. very likely to eclipse Twitter. Yeah, as a as a social media it's app, it's already necking neck in usage and downloading at the moment. With um, Twitter, yeah, with Twitter, and apparently um, going to beat Tinder as well. It's, so. it's apparently well, going to beat some... Google Maps as a map program. Yeah. 
I actually have some really nice stats here. Um, yeah. This, uh, I think yesterday, Go was released in Germany. Yes. Uh, or the day before, maybe. Uh, it hit number one on the iPhone revenue charts in three hours. This wow. is a free to download game as well. So that's yeah. pretty freaking amazing. Um, it's the the two most popular recent mobile apps are Clash Royale and Slither- uh, Slitherio. They had like, Oh, Slitherio. Yeah, so they had 1.67. <laughs> and It's been knocked off the charts now. 0.84% daily use. So not very much. Uh, Pokemon Go has hit 10.8% in the US. That's like a daily user use. Um, it's worth noting that... Hang on, what? 10, 10, 1 in 10 people in all of the America are using it every day. daily user penetration. No, so that's uh, all Android phone users. That's amongst Android phone users. Wow. That's still a huge stat. There, there like, are no like stats the, on Apple users the, just the, yet. The second, the, the, the second and third uh, like behind Go are basically 1.6% and 0.8%. So hitting double digits is just crazy. I mean, we are in the first week of this this thing coming out. It's only just rolling out into places in Europe as well. So and we it's still already ca- hit uh, it's 2 million revenue in America. That's just crazy. Um, that, that's awesome for an app that doesn't have any ads on it. Yeah. yeah. As of July 7th, Pokemon Go was already installed on more US Android phones than Tinder. So there's your Tinder stat. There we go. Um, and yeah, the massive interest in Pokemon Go has helped Nintendo company's stock surge more than 20%. And according Up to 7.5 billion. According to David Ingalls of Bloomberg, Nintendo, Nintendo, Nintendo <laughs> have had their best one day move since 1983. <laughs> I think for a lot of people, um, myself included, Nintendo has been very hesitant for a very long time to let go of some of their franchises. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted to have it locked to their hardware. They wanted to make sure that these uh, things worked only on their stuff. And people were That's- starting to move. Uh, young people, for example, like young kids as well, you know, given the choice now, they'll pick up a, a tablet or a phone over something like a DS, a 3DS. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, you're missing a, an audience there who, uh, you know, want this sort of stuff. And there is such a huge value in Pokemon. Um, it's, I mean, it's had its 20th anniversary just this year. And, you know, it's become huge again because obviously it was always huge it just kind of faded away in people's minds it's so big there's so many people playing it and so many people that i didn't think would be playing it um and because i myself am not playing it um so i've got a lot of people of my friends coming up to me I'm like how are you not doing it you yeah. go the pixel sift and blah 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 yeah, how are like, you not doing it well look yeah. look 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 i only joined current gen console this month so i've kind of been reveling in that for a while and like if I'm going to play a game, because like, I, I consider myself fairly competitive and good at games, even though I could do consider myself a casual gamer, I'm not going to go out uh, into the park. Uh, Perth people will only get this, but Kings Park, the city park, um, at 10.30 at night to go and catch Pokemon. And that's kind of the, the level you need to be. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's a week and so already into it. I feel like I've already missed the boat and I don't want to play one of at the big that things, kind of competitive level. One of the big things about this is that there are people playing it very heavily, very mm. competitively. And for anyone who starts like next week in an, a, or, you know, a month's time or six months' time, it, the levels at which people are going to be is going to be so difficult that I think it's going to be kind of semi-impossible to get away but with in-app purchases without buying something mm. exactly so at the moment you can totally get away with it because everyone's leveling at about the same well, something, rate something can actually be said about the in-app purchases they don't actually like someone spending I think the most you can actually spend on the app in Australian dollars is I think $151 and that will give you the you most you can buy of, that multiple times though you can that's just a one-off purchase that gives you the currency but the things that are able to be bought day, maybe? The, the things that are like able to be bought they're not 
like they don't power up your Pokemon at all. Like they are no, they like, sort of speed up things. You can't and... even buy, let's say, potions with this stuff. You yep. need to earn them. You need to go to Pokestops and get them. So you can't even. So you, someone spending, let's say, one hundred and fifty dollars is actually going to be in no way better prepared to, let's say, take down a gym, which is the only thing that is competitive at the moment, than the person who started just then and had didn't spend any money. Yeah. I mean, it does sort of speed up the acquisition of, of getting Pokemon. That's one of the big mm. things. and it, it kind of does, but still... You don't have to physically spend as much time walking around as, you know, that sort of... That's sort of, I guess, where they've kind of put the speed boost into it. But, mm-hmm. I mean, there's some crazy stuff that's kind of come out of this. We've seen uh, someone who was playing Pokemon Go... Uh, has discovered a body, yep. um, which is very sad. But you know, they it's taking the people to places they probably normally wouldn't go. Um, and there's also because of that, there's places that people are setting up the lures yeah. and luring people, luring in. people in. And that was about nine people got mugged yeah. in America. Um, the uh, U.S. Marines um, playing just at home, I think, uh, not at home, but you know, in America, uh, they helped catch an attempted murder suspect yeah. um, while their game was um, loading, frozen, frozen. I think, because yeah. you know there have been lots, many, many reports on glitches and security risks and whatever. There was also a nice picture of somebody whose uh, his wife was giving birth and he was catching a pigeon. <laughs> that's <laughs> it's pretty that's funny because she doesn't look Is happy. That that's going to be photoshopped. That's... No, it looks pretty real. <laughs> Uh, anyway, <laughs> look, it's huge. Uh, everyone's playing it. It looks it, like it's here to stay. I think so. It would be really interesting to see what this happens with six months' time. Maybe yeah. they expand it out to what, what happens. Some of the interesting things you can see is that people have started making uh, shared Google Docs uh, here in WA, and I'm sure it'll be in lots of other places as well, where you can catch particular Pokemon. They're making mm. a, a, a database of that. It's crazy. Mm. It's It'd be like a bird watching type thing. Yeah, like yeah, like bird watching. I've seen plenty of Pidgeys, I'll tell you that Except right now. way cooler. <laughs> way, yeah. <laughs> Look, uh, that's all we've got time for today. So thank you again for joining us for this episode of Pixel Sift. We hope you've enjoyed it. As usual, we'll be putting all the links up on our website, which is www.pixelsift.com.au. Scott, people are probably going to find you on social media because you're not playing Pokemon Go. Yeah. And what sites are you probably going to be checking uh, out? You guys know the drill. Facebook.com forward slash Pixel Sift. Twitter.com forward slash Pixel Sift. Twitch.tv forward slash Pixel Sift. And YouTube.com forward slash Pixel Sift. A-U. Mitch. All their episodes. Yeah, we so have you can, them. as always, you can check them out on our website, and uh, you can subscribe to either subscribe to either our either iTunes, Pocket Casts, or using the RSS link on our page. Or if you want to view the videos again, we're on YouTube as yep, well. We are um, on YouTube. There's plenty of different options to which to to check it all out. So, thanks again for joining us. Uh, we will catch you again this time next week. Decent. See ya. Later. <laughs>